Hey, good morning. Uh, not ideal, but I got better weather this time, this month, than I did last time I taught. And I know there's still some people out there struggling with the, the roads and everything. A couple of things before we get started here. Uh, one is that uh, I think uh, this is going to be the last Sunday we're going to see Luke and Shell Winger for a while. Luke has taken an associate pastor's position, is that right? Youth pastor position in Indiana. And so we really appreciate having them here and uh, want to pray for them as they start off this new venture, newly married, expecting, and everything moving forward in life. So uh, pray, for the, pr- pray for the wingers. Secondly, I just want to make sure you understand that we're moving in June for good. That was the decision. All right? Does that make sense? All right. This is... This is really probably the most significant change we've had at Lion Lamb, Mike tells us, ever. And it will be a lot of change, so be prepared for that. Be prepared for that. Uh, In the mid-1800s, Hans Christian Andersen wrote a story, and it was a story about a vain emperor who hired some tailors to make a suit of clothing for him. And he said, I want this suit of clothing to be so fine, so majestic, that it will be invisible to folks who are below their position in life or are too stupid to understand. And so the tailors looked at each other, they nodded and say, as your majesty wishes. And so they went about the task of rolling out and cutting and sewing and doing all those things on material that nobody could see. And then they brought in their suit of clothing for the emperor, and they mimed putting it on him, and in fact told him, Your Honor, Your Majesty, these clothes are so fine that they're light as a spider's web. And everybody in the courtyard oohed and awed, saying, Oh, how beautiful! Because nobody wanted to admit that they couldn't see them that they were below their position or too stupid to see them. And so they decided to have a procession out in the town. And as the the emperor and his following paraded through town, everybody oohed and awed for the very same reason. Until they got to a little boy who looked up and said, Hey, look, the emperor ain't got no clothes on. And his father hushed him. But some of the other people said, wait a minute, that's right, he doesn't. And everybody started to talk about how the, why would the emperor come out with any clothes on? But the emperor and the people with him, who saw the very same thing, just simply paraded on as if nothing had happened. Because they knew in their minds it's better for people to believe that they're too stupid to understand that I got clothes on because these clothes are invisible. Now, there's a lot of moral lessons to be learned about vanity and other things like that in this story, but one of them is that we should not accept what other people say, their opinions, as fact. Because sometimes these are misperceptions, sometimes they're outright lies. And in order to discover the truth, we've got to somehow, sometimes, ask some questions. Even if the conclusion we come to is 
not popular or is politically incorrect. The question I want to ask all of you folks today is, is our world really very much different from the emperor and his followers? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just give you all praise and glory. We just pray that you'd help us to understand today how important your truth is. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, when we're in a passage or a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and when you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, particularly in the early parts in chapter 5, you might come to the conclusion that Jesus kind of picks one topic, and then he goes to another, and he expounds on those and, and, and fixes things. But order has significance here. And he starts off by talking about anger and murder in the heart. And then he goes on to talk about lust and adultery in the heart. Then he talks about divorce and the importance of the commitment to marriage in the heart. And now he's going to address the whole idea of oaths and pledges and commitments. In other words, truth in the heart. And this, but this is more than just a heart issue. This all goes together in a seamless web. It's all an integrated whole. That's why we need to look at this passage. So let's take a look at it here in Matthew 5, starting at verse 33. I believe you have this on your sheet. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, if you think about that, you might recognize that there's probably a lot of confusion about this passage. First of all, the terms, oath, vow, pledge, swearing, they all have both similar meanings and sometimes dissimilar. Like swearing can mean to tell the truth. You know, do you swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, okay? But swearing can also be bad words, you know, like he swears like a sailor, all right? Uh, and then there's this other confusion about what Jesus is saying. And he said, make no oath at all. Does that mean like when the president puts his hands on the Bible and swears to support and uphold and defend the laws and constitution of the nation? Uh, what about telling the truth or swearing to tell the truth in court? What about the Pledge of Allegiance? What about the vows you take at the wedding altar? Is that a violation of what Jesus said? After all, he said, make no oath, no vow at all. Well, before we get to this confusion, we've got to go back to something more fundamental, more basic. Without truth for society, it is game over. Yeah, people lie, sometimes frequently. 
However, if we cannot rely on other folks to tell the truth generally, we really can't live life as we know it. Now, this is so obvious, it's even hard to discuss it. It's kind of like a tautology. You know, a rose is a rose is a rose. It's important to tell the truth because it's important to tell the truth. Everybody knows that. But to understand how it's important to tell the truth, we must first have a clear understanding of what truth is. Okay? So the biblical view would be that truth is what is ultimately, finally, and absolutely real. By real, we mean in reality. The way it is, the way things are. Not just physically, but logically and spiritually as well. We tell it like it is. Therefore, truth is utterly dependable and trustworthy. Now, the first question we've got to ask when relating to others is, what is their view of reality? And I'm serious about this. What is their view of reality? Some people believe in truth, and they believe in reality, but they don't believe in God. Okay? And one point that these atheists miss is that in order to have truth, don't you need a truth maker or an ultimate standard by which to determine truth? Okay? That's a fair question to ask. However, there's another group of folks who have left our reality as we see it. These are called postmodernists. And they believe that each of us has their own reality, their own context, in which something is true for me, but not necessarily true for you. We all make up our own little world, so to speak. And that nobody can make a truth claim that's binding on someone else. Uh, as you can see, if you think about this, this borders on insanity. All right? For believers, our truth is grounded, anchored in God's own reality and his truthfulness. On your sheet there, you should have some words that describe what truth is. First of all, it's non-contradictory. That's a 75-cent word for just saying it does not violate the laws of logic. Okay? Uh, it's universal. It doesn't depend on whether it's today or a thousand years ago. It doesn't depend on whether we're here in America or we're in Iraq. It doesn't depend on whether the situation is easy, clear, black and white, or whether it's hard and the consequences of the truth are going to be difficult to swallow. It doesn't depend on any of those things. Truth is discovered. In other words, it's objective. It exists independently of my mind. I cannot create truth myself. Truth is descriptive. In other words, it is the agreement between the mind and reality. We call this coherence. Something is coherent when it matches reality. Truth is unchanging. It is the firm standard by which all truth claims are judged. And finally, truth is inescapable. In other words, to deny its existence is to affirm it. 
And we're going to talk about that right now. What do we do with those folks who are outside reality in their mind or perhaps just in their statements, their arguments? Well, Christy and I have been facilitating a class for high schoolers, some of which are here, which is about the art of asking questions when somebody makes an assertion, somebody makes a a claim that doesn't blow them out of the water. In other words, when people make an assertion that's contrary to Christianity, our tendency is to make a counter-assertion. There is no God. Well, yes, there is. Okay, where do you go with that? All right, instead, what, the, what our teacher is, is telling us is that instead we, we keep the burden on the person who made the first claim. We say, what do you mean by that? And that gives them an opportunity to justify their position, to explain it. And then we can ask, well, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? And that gives us more information about how they came to this. And quite likely, it's because they heard somebody else say it. Okay? But at some point in the conversation, you might want to go a little bit on the offensive. Again, not making assertions yourself, but simply by asking questions. So I put some questions on your sheets there that maybe you have heard. All right? One of them is, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I I would guess a lot of you have thought about the retort to this. Well, okay. Is your statement, there is no absolute truth, absolutely true? You understand? It self-destructs. Okay? It's like the roadrunner. Okay? You don't know Wiley Coyote is chasing the roadrunner. And the roadrunner stops suddenly right before the cliff. But Wiley keeps going. And then he's got that silly grin on his face knowing that he's about to fall 10,000 feet into the canyon. That's what happens when you ask this kind of a question. Okay? Um, what's the next one? Uh, it may be true for you, but not for me. Now, I thought about this one. This is, this, this is one where you can have a little fun. You can say, oh, okay. Hey, have you tried that with the traffic cop? Does it work? Get me? Or how about with the IRS? You know, it may be your truth that I owe the IRS some money, but the truth that I like is that you owe me some money, right? Now, how's that going to work in reality? Or this one. The only thing that's true is that which can be proven by science. This is the one I think the, the guy in Nacho Libre. I believe in science. Okay? All right? So, what can you ask? Okay, how did you come to that conclusion? Or did science prove that to you? Otherwise, it's not true. You see, these statements commit suicide. All you've got to do is ask the questions to point it out. Now, um, the poet Steve Turner wrote a brilliant parody on this attitude. He called it Creed. And it goes partly like this. I believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adopt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. I believe that there is no absolute truth, excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. Okay? Now, you may laugh, but the issue of the existence of truth is really significant today. Some polls suggest that up to two-thirds of adults will claim 
that there is no absolute truth. Now, do I believe that two-thirds of the adults out there who believe that or say that have actually thought that through? No. No way have they. But if you ask them the question on a poll or whatever, is there such a thing as absolute truth, they're going to think about, what do my friends think? I don't want to appear to be close-minded or dogmatic or like those Christians, so I'm just going to say no. There's no absolute truth to life. Why do people do this? It could be peer pressure, certainly. could be just mental laziness. could be a desire to not be constrained by any morality at all. All those things are probably true in most cases. But there's another reason. It's called coercion of a sort. When young people go off to college, uh, they are often confronted by people who look and talk really smart, usually with glasses and a goatee. Sorry, Mike. And then these people will grade them based upon their acceptance of their statement, their assertion. And these young people are often ill-prepared to defend their own faith, much less the faith that they heard from their parents or their pastor when they did not adopt it as their own. And so that's exactly why Christy and I are facilitating these classes. It's amazing that parents will spend good money and lots of it to send their kids to college to be taught that nothing they are taught could be true. You get that? Isn't that amazing? When we teach young people that there is no such thing as truth, we should not be surprised when they act like it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think this is, quote is on your, your, your handout. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful. Lewis has a way of saying things that makes you think. Now, I know you could say that I have strayed from the text here, which addresses oaths and telling the truth. However, I've taken this diversion because I believe it's really central to the text. If we can get others to listen, we have got to be able to explain to them graciously in a way they'll understand what's at stake here. If there is no such thing as moral truth, why is it important to tell the truth ever? What authority commands us to be honest with other people. So if you think about it, if people carry out what they say to its logical conclusion, maybe as many as two-thirds of the adults out there, the consequences would be disastrous. Think about a world without a foundation of truth. A world without trust or trustworthiness. Well, you couldn't put your money in the bank because you can't trust the bankers. In fact, money would have no value because you can't trust the government that prints it. Sound familiar? Uh, you couldn't sign a contract. 
of course, and you really couldn't transact any business. Uh, you know, you couldn't uh, drive a car or use any product for, with assurance of safety because you can't trust the makers. Uh, you couldn't even get married or have a semblance of a family. So you couldn't trust the people in your house. Uh, what would be the point of church or even school? Uh, no reason to rely upon any teacher or preacher or philosopher or candidate for office or anybody like that. Literally, without truth, we could not relate to one another. So, I'm hopeful with this that we have an understanding now and we've got to be able to explain to others the necessity of absolute truth and telling the truth and how those two are inextricably intertwined. And both are vital to our continued existence as a culture. This is not a Christian thing necessarily, although we all know it's, that's where it comes from, but this is just a, a matter of reality. Now, I think if you were here last time, I think uh, I heard, I, I listened to Mike's message, wasn't here, but I think I've actually beat Mike in terms of length of an introduction, okay? Let's get to the text, and uh, with these things in mind, we want to look at what Jesus says, what he's teaching, and why, and then we're going to try to make some application to our own lives. The context here is the... Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is framing these issues with them to correct the misinterpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees over God's law. Um, and uh, and he, he goes on here, and when he says, you have heard, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Those words are not found in the Old Testament. However, they do reflect a summary of Old Testament teaching. And you should have this there. You've got first the commandment, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Vain means empty, nothingness, even wickedness. And therefore it includes not just using the Lord's name as a curse word, but also making a vow using his name that you do not intend to keep. But it also says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall fear only the Lord your God, you shall worship him and swear by his name. And in Leviticus 19, you shall not swear falsely by in my name so as to profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. And then you've got some other references there. So the Old Testament clearly makes uh, a false oath uh, prohibited and is perjury. Yet, oath-taking was allowed, even encouraged, for serious matters. However, the tendency back then was to use the Lord's name for an oath in even trivial matters. And we can think about this and understand why. Because since Genesis 3, we've had sin in the world and people tend to lie. So credibility or trustworthiness is an issue. So people would gain some credibility by simply using the Lord's name in an oath and, and trying to convince people of their, their assertions that way. Um, we see this today. Okay? When somebody makes a statement... And they get a look of incredulity, you know, come on, you know. And then they immediately say, I swear to God, it's true. Okay, anybody ever heard that? Without even thinking about the gravity of what you're saying. It just comes out. The children of Israel had to be reminded of their relationship with God 
and that their whole lives, everything they did were under the eyes of God and that all of life must be lived for him. The backdrop for all this teaching, all these commandments, is found in Leviticus, uh, both in chapters 11 and 19, where it is said, you are to be holy, for I am holy. You can't be holy if you're not telling the truth. Moses emphasized that an oath was only to be taken for solemn matters of exceptional gravity for that person or for the nation. Let's take a look now at what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. And if we recall, the scribes and Pharisees were most focused on keeping the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Uh, If they did not commit actual murder or physical adultery, they were righteous in their own eyes, regardless of their internal anger or their lust. There's uh, some levels of legalism here. They considered them righteous, considered themselves righteous, if they avoided the sin of perjury. They could make an oath and fulfill it, but then feel free to violate or not keep the the words that they'd given that were not under oath. But there's a more explicit and more hideous way in which they practiced legalism. Uh, They had an elaborate system of rules for taking oaths, some of which were binding and some not. Jesus addresses this very issue in Matthew 23, where it says, Yeah, it's on your sheet. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, not binding. But if whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And then you say, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, not binding at all. But whoever swears by the offering on the altar, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Let's take a quick diversion here. What is legalism? We've talked about this before. Okay, to be honest, it is not a personal standard that is higher than mine. Okay? It's not wearing a tie to church. It's not wearing a dress that's longer than mine. Uh, it's not uh, singing hymns, or, and it's not not going to movies. Okay? If those are personal convictions, personal practices, and it's not forced on anybody else, it's just that. And we run the risk of judging when we, in our minds, say that person is legalistic, okay? But Matthew 23 is quintessential legalism, okay? It is drawing lines, usually arbitrary lines, yet being able to claim the high ground of righteousness because I've kept my toes just on this side of the line, So it gave the scribes and Pharisees the ability to say, I'm sorry that you don't think I kept my word, but I just swore by the temple, not by the gold of the temple. That's what lawyers do. Okay? They draw lines. That's why they call it legalism. 
Okay, let's move on to the teaching and purpose of Jesus, the most important part here. As the second person of the Trinity who speaks with the authority of the whole Godhead, he says, but I say unto you, I gave you the whole law, and here's what I'm saying right now. Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, let's talk about the question. Given what Jesus just said, do I ever take or make an oath or a vow? Okay? There's a group of folks, uh, Quakers and I believe Anabaptists, which are usually Amish and Mennonite, who take this passage literally, and therefore they refuse to take an oath, even in a court of law. And I've seen this, you know, where one of them will come in, and usually it said, do you swear to tell the truth? And the judge simply recognizes who he's got, and he said, sir, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And he says, sure. Now, um, Somehow the word affirm does not violate the words of Jesus, even though the effect is the same. Because to lie about a material fact in court under an affirmation is perjury. Just like if you swear or take an oath to tell the truth. The judge just wants to know, is the guy with the long beard and the wide brimmed hat going to tell the truth? Okay? And so the effect is the same. Now, this is not an issue that we divide over. You know, these are good people. And so we don't, you know, we don't throw them out or whatever. But I wonder if these folks have unintentionally put themselves in the same position as the scribes and Pharisees. Because their focus is on the mint, the anise, and the cumin, and they forget the weightier matters of the law. Why would God command how and when oaths should be taken if it was his will that they never be taken. It's clear that on certain special occasions in the Old Testament, holy men of God had to take an oath in a solemn and serious way. Look at Jesus himself. In Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial with the high priest, and he holds his peace, doesn't, doesn't respond to the accusations. But then the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus was never afraid to reprove the religious leaders. But he didn't rebuke the priest for using the name of God in this way. In fact, he considered it legitimate. And it was only after this solemn charge that Jesus responded to the high priest. The apostles took oaths uh, in a number of occasions. I think the references might be on your, your handout. But in Hebrews 6, we see this, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as, as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The author here is trying to reassure uh, his readers 
by reminding them that God took an oath. He explains that when men take an oath, it's a confirmation to others. It ends strife. It settles matters as, as to important things. One taking an oath is effectively saying, for this vital and serious matter, I take my stand here. I make this commitment. I will not back down. So it's something that is right and exemplified by God. So the conclusion that I come to as to oath-taking, given the words of Jesus and the whole counsel of Scripture, is that oaths are to be used for special occasions only. But it's not only legitimate, but it actually adds a solemnity and authority which nothing else can. So let's see what other practical applications we can make here. What about garden variety cursing, swearing, okay? It's clear that we should never use the name of God or Christ in any way that's derisive or disrespectful, uh, or even just shouting out the name in a disrespectful manner. That's clear. What about other types of cursing, swear words, foul language? You know, what does it profit, my brethren? Does it do anything to build up? No. Um, There are some environments, perhaps you work in one, that are filled with bad language. My leadership, in fact, my manhood was once challenged in the Marine Corps by a peer because I didn't lace my speech with these words. And if you walk down the street uh, long enough, you're going to hear some young person or some old person not be able to speak a sentence without one or more four or seven letter words, okay? What do you do? You know, I think it's best simply to pray for those folks because if they had the security of Christ in their lives, they would have no need to try to intimidate people with their language. Uh, Jesus makes it clear that we are not to swear by any creature or created thing. Why? It all belongs to God. Not by heaven, not by earth, not by Jerusalem, not by even the hairs on our heads, what hairs we have. Uh, Nothing but the name of God himself. The distinction drawn by the scribes and Pharisees was patently ridiculous. Because all those things mentioned are under God. Jesus also forbids us to make oaths in ordinary conversation. This gets back to the question of the importance of truth on a daily basis. He says, let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. It's really pretty simple. Uh, If you consistently tell the truth, you will be known for telling the truth. And you will have no need for that excited utterance, I swear it's true. People will believe you. Jesus calls that kind of swearing evil. Now, on the international level, we think it's a travesty for a nation like Russia to lie about what we can see on TV they're doing in the Ukraine, right? Pretty bad stuff. However, uh, is it okay when we tell white lies, or maybe when we break a vow to remain married? How is that different from the distinction the scribes and Pharisees made between the temple and the gold of the temple? 
about exaggerations? Okay, aren't they really kind of half-truths or really lies? Okay, when people about, you know, say something about me about something I did or said that was really stupid, you know, my tendency is to say, no, it, you know, it really wasn't that bad, okay? But when they exaggerate the other way to make me look better than I really am, my temptation is to kind of let it pass by, right? You don't mind letting those float for a while. Um, how about evangelism? The Great Commission. How do people become believers? Certainly by the word, certainly by witnessing, but isn't it also a part of their experience to watch Christians? Uh, and they watch and see if our walk matches our talk. Is our word trustworthy? We are being watched all the time. And everything we do and say is of huge importance to those people watching. Finally, not only are we watched by others, but God sees and hears everything we do, say, and even think. Uh, in a little while, we're going to go through the Lord's table. And one of the things we talk about in the Lord's table is that every man or woman, every one taking the, the, the uh, communion, should examine himself or herself. Okay? And you say, well, examine what? You know, I'm, I'm here. No, examine the inside. And I suspect that all of us need to ask for God's mercy. Because perhaps we've been distinguishing, distinguishing between big and little lies, or between lies and things that aren't exactly lies. I, you, know, you know what I mean. Now, we as Christians believe and state that we are in fellowship with the Father and His Son and, the, and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we should, as Paul says, not grieve the Spirit, which sees and hears all. We've got to remember that everything that we do in our lives and in our conversation is in His presence. And it may, in fact, be the witness that determines what others think of Him and how they respond to Him. Just like the prophet said to Israel, Peter reminds us all in 1 Peter 1, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, and I would add conversation, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Lord God, please let that sink in. As your children we are to reflect the character of Christ the best that we possibly can. And in our imperfections, we will stumble, but we always 
must keep our focus on you and pleasing you. Lord God, we pray that you would help all here who have not heard this before to understand we're not talking about earning salvation. We're talking simply about once we're saved to be holy because you are holy. Help us, Lord, to understand that telling the truth is foundational to our very existence as a culture. But yet, regardless of all that, it is important because you said it is. And therefore, you have given us order to our lives. We give you praise and honor and ask that you would be with us now as we lift our praises to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.